great to be with you. If you're new with us, welcome. We'd love to connect with you. There should be uh, connect cards at the, on those little tables at the top of the stairs. You can jot your info down and we'll follow up. We'd love to connect with you and hear more about your story, all that. Uh, we try to be pretty crispy, pretty tight with our announcements in this spot right here. But in the fall, like everything starts up. So we have an announcement marathon coming up. So, but I think if we, if we stick with it together, we can make it through. Because there's a lot of fun things going on. First, just a couple of like save the dates information things. Today, right after the gathering, we're having a Life Transformation Group Lunch and Learn. If you're curious about what uh, Life Transformation Groups are, they're forming now. You can just pop down to the basement. We'll have pizza and talk about those uh, and how you can get involved. Or if you just want pizza, you can come eat some pizza. Uh, this Wednesday, we're kind of doing our all-church prayer night or kind of like prayer night to launch the fall and all the ministries starting uh, here at the church building, there'll be childcare provided at 6.30. Come join us for that. Uh, next Sunday, uh, after the gathering, there's more food. Uh, if you're interested in getting involved in music ministry, joining the band up here, you can come and have maybe pizza again, maybe something different. I didn't get those details. But we, we'd love to have people join our uh, music ministry. Uh, in a few weeks, we're having a, a men's retreat on October 7th and 8th. Uh, it should be a fun time. You can register for that all on Slack. Um, so save the day for that. More info coming on that next Sunday. And then another save the date membership class starts up on October 2nd. Uh, if you're interested in becoming a member, making this your church home, learning what we're about and how you can get plugged in, that's a fun class. It's very interactive. You get to meet a lot of new people if you're looking to get connected. There's food. All that stuff, all, a lot of food. You're noticing a theme around here at Redemption City. Uh, so those are all the, the drive-by announcements. You still with me? Kind of? Okay. Now I want to invite Lene and Acacia up. Uh, we're going to talk about the Emotionally Healthy Relationships class that's starting on September 28th, uh, going for six weeks. I'm leading it with these lovely ladies. Uh, they're going to come and share a little bit about, about the class with us. We're doing it interview style. Lene. Uh, see the red light? Is it on the bottom? There you go. Should be good now. Yep. Thumbs up. This is Lene. Hi. She's going to help lead the class. What are you thinking? How are you feeling about the class? Um, I was just reading recently about how our relationships with people and our relationships with God are connected. So I'm excited. Um, yeah, what I was reading said that the way God responds to us is not the way that people respond to us, but the way we respond to God is often very similar to ways we respond to other people. So I'm excited that this class addresses both of those things. It has a workbook that has practical tools for how we can relate well with other people and a devotional to help us practice new ways of relating with God. Awesome. This is Acacia, and she's leading. Uh, what, what would you encourage people in uh, when, when thinking about the class? Yes, I am also very excited about the class. Um, I would encourage everyone to think about one tense relationship that you are currently in or have been in recently and bring that experience with you into the class. I think we can learn so much from one challenging relationship about how we are relating in all of our other relationships. So be thinking about that, bring that in, and you can share it in the class or just keep it in the back of your mind as we're learning. And um, we're going to be getting lots of training on relationship patterns and family history and lots of good stuff like that. Awesome. Thank you. So you can put it on the stand over there. Great. Well, thank you, ladies. Uh, Excited to to lead with them. That's right. Put your hands together. 
And uh, I just want to do a special uh, call to action for the men in the room. We talk about emotions and relationships. We're like, okay, yeah, let's let the ladies do that or whatever. But, like, we are probably the ones that need it the most. Like, we're all kind of probably, we stopped developing emotionally in middle school, probably. And so uh, I would encourage you to take the class. It might feel a little uncomfortable outside your, your wheelhouse, but, uh, but jump in. And, and the thing I will say is that it's not just sitting around feeling. What I love about the course is that it's skill-based. It will give you, like, practical skills that you can do. So guys sometimes tend to be doers and want to fix things and stuff. Uh, this, this could give you some things that you could actually try uh, to do. So uh, you can sign up for that on Slack, uh, and we'll get your books and everything ordered and see you on the 28th. Uh, last thing is giving. If you call this church home uh, as a member, a regular tender, we invite you to give and give generously because we have received uh, generously from God. You can uh, give online on our website, or you can drop a uh, cashier check in the box at the top of the stairs. That's it. We made it. You guys still alive? There's a lot of announcements. That went against all my like, philosophy of how to do announcements at church. But you have the info, and there's lots of fun things. Uh, I was talking to Pastor Mike about this passage this week, and he said when he read it with, uh, with his kids, Jonathan, his son, was like, well, that's not a story you see in the Jesus Storybook Bible, <laughs> which I thought was insightful. It is not. It is noticeably not in the Jesus Storybook Bible. Uh, and if you have kids and they ask half as many questions as mine do, like imagine what the follow-up conversation to this Bible story would, would be like if you have toddlers or whatever. Like, Dad, what's a demon? Do I have a demon? Why did he cut himself? Can I get super strength with a demon? And why, why did the piggies die? Ruby's our little like feeler. She'd be like, I'm sad about the piggies. And so many questions. But, but honestly, that's, that's how I felt this week, uh, wrestling with the text. So... Many questions. But here's what I got. I think what is abundantly, gloriously clear in the text is that Jesus is king over evil. Jesus is king over evil. And when I say king over, I mean he has authority over, power over evil, and specifically demonic evil. That's what our text is looking at today. As we journey through this biography of Jesus... We are seeing Mark, the divinely inspired author, over and over and over again, showing us almost systematically every realm, every aspect of reality in which Jesus reigns. Last week we had the epic story of Jesus calming a hurricane, the way way you calm a petulant child. You know, hush, stop it, be still. And the raging waves and wind became mega calm. Today we see Jesus getting to the other side of that same sea that he just calmed and getting confronted with this demonized man who has just a chaotic chaotic storm of evil going on inside of him. And beyond all the questions and details of the story and what it shows us about demonic activity, the primary thing, the most important aspect of reality that we can't miss is that Jesus holds absolute power and authority over Evil. There's no back and forth battle, you know, it's not like Pacific Rim, that cinematic masterpiece that my dad loves, where there's like a huge sea monster that gets punched by a huge robot. Instead, it's like Ruby, my daughter, trying to tackle me. Like, oh, sweetheart, I curl more than your whole body weighs. Like, it's cute. So as we dive into this story, and if we take it seriously, it can be, it's pretty scary. It's pretty sobering if this is real. We're, we're diving in 
to the scariness, secure in the fact that in Jesus, as his disciples, we are safe. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Angels or demons or powers of hell can separate us from his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. The three things I want us to look at today in the, in the text is Jesus is king over the complexity of evil. He's king over demonic evil. And then we see the responses to King Jesus. So let's dive in. Verse 1 and 2. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. So to start, I just want to set the stage because what do we as literate, 21st century, modern, scientific, rational human beings do with a story about demons? Uh, The Bible's old. Mark and Jesus just didn't know what we know now about science and mental health and education and all that stuff, you know, where we know about all the problems. And we have a pill for all of them, or we're working on on one. But the Bible is actually profoundly holistic in its understanding of evil and all the complexities of evil. The Bible will not let us reduce evil to some simple one-size-fit-all, like take a pill or get better educated, or better theology, or do this thing. Like It shows that evil is a complex thing, and there's no simple answers. And I want to show the wisdom of Scripture, uh, that the Bible is not saying, anytime there's something bad, it's a demon. You know, like, car broke down, because there's a demon in the training, or something like that. Like, that's not what we're talking about here. I think we can give space to demonic evil without saying that everything is a demon. So that's what we're going for. I want to look at the origin story of evil, the first record evil that we have uh, in Scripture. So if you have your Bibles, if you're following along, flip over to Genesis chapter 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So into God's perfect creation, where there's no sin, God and humanity lived in beautiful intimacy, walking together in the cool of the day, uh, mankind just enjoyed being with God, and no one, was, no one was sad, and nothing was bad. Here comes the serpent into the garden, and what does he do? He asks the question, did God really say? And he kind of twists God's words in the question. Did God really say you can't eat any of these fruits? Which is, like, which is not true, it's a leading question. Because God made this beautiful garden for mankind to enjoy, and you can, eat, you can eat from all the trees except for one. So Satan kind of asks questions and twists the narrative and muddies the water to get Eve kind of confused and flustered. And, and, then, what? and then he says what? You will not surely die, which is, which is what? It's a lie. It's a bold-faced lie. It's just untrue. And then he reshapes the narrative. Instead of seeing this beautiful intimacy with God that Adam and Eve were enjoying as something loving and safe and trusting, 
Trusting God that he's good uh, and that he wants their good, he takes this lie, you won't die, and builds a false story. That the reason why God is telling you not to eat this particular fruit uh, is, is because he's holding, he doesn't love you. He's holding back. He's holding out. He doesn't want your good. And as simple as that might sound, that, my friends, is the fundamental root of all evil. The terrible lie that because of sin is in all of our hearts. We doubt that God is good and that he loves us. And look what happens next in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So the woman's desires were engaged based on hearing this lie. And she looked at the, the fruit and saw that it was, it was good for three things. There's three desires that this fruit met. It was good for food, which you could call comfort and security. It was a delight to the eyes. It was appealing, beautiful, attractive, and it was able to make one wise, more significant, more like God. These three desires before this terrible lie were found in God, and now she reaches out to, to satisfy them apart from God. And because of this, the world was shattered. This relationship out of which everything flowed was now broken between God and man. Look at the rest of the story in verse 8. And when they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, Above all beasts of the field, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." Here we see everything broken, starting with the relationship between God and humanity as they hide from him, the relationship between humans as Adam blames his wife, the relationship between humanity in creation is now broken as there's enmity between creatures and there's toil and work and pain in childbirth. This is the, the origin story of evil, and it shows us some of the essential reality of evil. Historically, the church has summarized evil in three great enemies of our soul that we see here in this text, which is the world, the flesh, and the devil. The three great enemies of our soul, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And this is a complex mix, complex concoction of these three elements that make up evil. 
And the Bible, I think, stands alone as a robust and holistic view of evil. Some worldviews would see evil as, as focusing on the world. It's societal and systemic. Uh, some are, m- might be more superstitious and overemphasize the demonic activity. And some are just individuals making bad choices. And the Bible says it's all of them. It's a blend. It's never simple. But the Bible also says that Jesus is king over all of it. Jesus will defeat all of the evil. And one of the most helpful explanations of how this evil plays out into our everyday lives uh, is from John Mark Comer, where he, he summarizes the three enemies like this, or connects them. The devil sows deceptive ideas or lies about who we are and what we need, and these lies play it to our disordered desires, which is our flesh, which are normalized by the fallen world around us. So they're, they're not separate silos or categories. They all work together in this big mix concoction to war against our soul. The devil's the father of lies in our hearts. Our desires, they get out of order where we want God's gifts more than God. We want other things more than God. And we live in a fallen world that celebrates these lies and behaviors that will destroy us. You know, I can't not make a grid, so I made a grid. I put it, put it all into a grid. We see the, the devil lies, he's the father of lies, the flesh is our desires, our broken desires, our out-of-order desires, and then the world are the, is the society around us, the, the systems and everything around us that would affirm and are not under King Jesus. And, and again, I, I do all this just to say one broad application of this biblical truth is that evil is complex, and it's holistic, it gets at all of our being. Lies get to our head, uh, the flesh gets to our desires, and the world gets to our relationships. So with that foundation, let's look at Jesus being king over demonic evil. This is a category of evil. Demonic activity, the devil, is that if we're going to be Bible-believing Jesus followers, we have to embrace which I don't think, depending on where you are in the belief spectrum, is that big of a leap. So if we are here and we believe in God, which at a conceptual level is personal, spiritual good. He's, he's a person, he's a being, and he's, he's a spiritual being, and he's good. So it's not a massive stretch of belief to consider that there would be personal, spiritual evil, personal beings who are spiritual and evil. And while this is weird and scary, maybe, this category of evil can help us explain a lot of the confusing, relentless, persistent problems that face us as society together and face us individually, uh, like, uh, more personally. Things like, you know, greed and the sexualization of everything that that just is how our society works uh, is explained. Like, is there like one person driving the greed of the economy? No, of course not. Um, And and personally, we have things like besetting sins or even some aspects of mental illness that we just can't get past. They seem entrenched. I'm not saying these things are always directly demonic. But let me just give you one example from Scripture. Scripture makes these terrifying, there's multiple ones, we're just going to do one, terrifying connections between very normal 
human experiences or emotions in the devil. Ephesians 4, 26 through 27 says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. When we are angry, and I'm not just talking about yelling or flipping tables. I mean, some of us are quiet, seething people, you know, stoic face over the the raging seas, and we repress it uh, for years. And if we don't deal with our anger, whether you're a short fuse or, you know, stew, you know, a volcano to stew for centuries, if we don't deal with it in emotionally healthy ways, it will turn to bitterness. And the wisdom of the scriptures is that bitterness, that response, opens up a door to the devil. Where demonic forces can stir up and cause all kinds of problems in your life. Do you see the complexity of this? Like maybe someone did something to you, something evil to you, and you are 100% a legitimate, innocent victim. But instead of processing the pain and anger before God, you start to get bitter. And over time, you're starting to be controlled by this bitterness that might become more demonically influenced. It starts to destroy your sleep and your marriage, and you store it up for years, and then you erupt in a rage that takes years to recover from. Am I saying that if you don't take the emotionally healthy relationship class, the devil will get you? No, I'm not. That was a joke. Thank you for laughing. I was nervous about that one. I felt like we needed some, some levity. But I hope for our own freedom, we can see the wisdom of the scriptures that certain emotions we have and choices we make in response to those emotions will bring vulnerabilities to demonic evil. Look how our text describes this man's experience with demonic evil in verse 3. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, cutting himself with stones. What an awful picture. The thing, we could talk a lot about this, but the thing I want to point out is that the, the phrase anymore, or the word anymore. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, which implies at some point they could. They had tried to restrain this man at some point, but he's gotten so strong, presumably from his demonic influence, this demonic influence that he can no longer be contained. There's a sense of progression in his connection to the demons. And when you look at the Greek word describing demonic involvement with people, it's rarely described like possession. There's obviously a sense, scripture shows us that, that demons can control humans, speak through them, and whatnot, but the word most often used in Greek could be translated demonized. People become progressively more demonized. And this reality, if you think about it, it could be both comforting and also terrifying. Because on the one hand, you know, we don't need to walk out of here like, you know, waiting for a demon to just like plunge into us and take us over. Like, bam, a swarm of demons come. Instead, it seems like there's little decisions, little ways of being that open us up, that cause us to become more and more influenced by demonic evil. The Faust myth, myth condenses this reality just to tell a great story. The, the timeless story of, of Faust is, is what? He makes a deal with the devil in order to get what his heart desires. 
And at the beginning of the story, it's always fun. These movies and retellings are always fun, right? Because he's got like money and he's cool and whatever. You know, like it, he has all the things that he wants. And, and in this story, or in our passage, the guy has superhuman strength. But enslaved to the devil, unsatisfied and, awe, and horrified at the foolish decision we, we made is how every Faust story ends. Those are the only two options, joyful submission under King Jesus or being enslaved to our own desires controlled by evil. And again, this, this story condenses it. It's a myth to, to show a point. Like I'm not saying, you know, Elizabeth Hurley is going to show up as the devil and try to make a deal with you. Instead, this looks like run-of-the-mill idolatry, elevating something good like a relationship or a career to the point where we look to it to provide what only God can so a case study, maybe your career is your source of significance. So you're all in on that. You want to make partner at your firm. If that is the deal metaphorically that you make with the devil, it will give you power. It will drive you to work longer than anyone else and to not take your vacations and maybe neglect your family and run over people in your way. Maybe in extreme cases or towards the end of the journey, even cut corners legally, which obviously could come back to really haunt you. And with that deal, what will happen? You'll probably make partner. You'll probably get it, willing to sacrifice anything for it. And then what? You'll get it and realize it was nothing. You're you're just as insecure. You feel just as insignificant uh, as, as you did when you decided to make that your goal. And now you're divorced, estranged from your kids, lonely, hoping the SEC doesn't decide to audit you and just wandering around the tomb of your office 80 hours a week, even though you could have retired three times over and rest. Because that's all you have. That's the deal that you made. Like you hear those stories about those guys that, that retire and die like two weeks later. Like they had sold their soul for career success and they, retirement took away their soul. Sometimes demonic activity looks like super strength your voice changing and head spinning around the way the movies show. But oftentimes, the devil can get everything he wants by simply helping you get what you think will satisfy your soul. And verse 5 is haunting, where it talks about him cutting himself <clears throat> day and night, crying out with stones and uh, cutting himself. We would do well to be humbled by the fact that even in our modern scientific, rational, progressive culture, we have the same self-harming problem that we see 2,000 years ago. I know self-harming is a super sensitive topic, and friend, if that is part of your story, we are glad you're here, we love you. If you want people to walk through that with you, we would love to do that. Camille and I had a foster daughter years ago who severely struggled with self-harming. It's an awful, scary, traumatic thing. But I bring it up because here it is in the text, and I want us to to consider the complexity of evil. Because I'm not saying that all self-harming is demonic influence. It's very complex reasons for that struggle, and any struggle. Sometimes it might be just a way to feel some actual pain, because through trauma we've just shut ourselves down and feel numb. Sometimes it's a way to get attention, and, and it's a response to neglect. That's what it was for our foster daughter. But sometimes it seems like we should at least consider that it could be part of demonic influence. Intrusive thoughts 
that are so powerful and compelling and seem to come out of nowhere? Could, could this be a part of the complex constellation of evil and certain messages and lies used by demonic evil to confuse you, alienate you, embarrass you, frustrate your lo- loved ones, make you feel helpless? Take it or leave it. But the invitation is sometimes uh, these, these various tender things require spiritual care. It's commonly called a deliverance ministry. Yes, coping strategies can be helpful. Yes, therapy can help. Maybe even psych meds could be helpful. Maybe it's a mixture of all these things. And, and part of the mixture is bringing it in to, to your spiritual walk, letting the trusted spiritual person, leader, friend care for you. I personally would love to pray with you about that. Next, we have the showdown with Jesus. Verse 6. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down to the the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The first thing we see is that the demons are crystal clear about who Jesus is, son of the most high God. Most commentators would say that that's kind of like a power move in a fight uh, back then to like name the other person, say the other person's name, maybe sarcastically or something. And when Jesus asks his name and finds out that it, he finds out that it's a legion, which that word refers to a, a, a Roman garrison of thousands of thousands of soldiers. So there's incredible chaos going on inside of this one human being. And he begs for mercy. The demons beg for mercy. Crazily, this is crazy. Like I it's just an observation the commentators say. is like the, the language of the demon is, sounds like the, the common language of an exorcism. Like the demons are calling on the name of God. I adjure you by God. Don't do this. But, but the point is the legion is scared of Jesus. So scared that he's proactively running to Jesus to, to try to avoid being tormented. Like they know the score. They know that Jesus is king over demonic evil. And they make this request to the pigs. And I just want to point out that Jesus has complete control over this situation. Faced with thousands, a horde of evil spirits, he doesn't even do much talking because he's in control. The demons are jabbering all over the place. In scripture, when you look at other interactions with demons, seems to indicate that demons do not like to be without a body for some reason. I, don't, I, don't, I haven't dove too deep into that. Uh, and so they want to go to the pigs, and King Jesus grants them permission. They don't like run away from Jesus because they're scared of, to the pigs. Like They can't do anything apart from permission. Jesus doesn't duke it out with them. He's not trading blows. He's not negotiating. He's not babbling spiritual incantations, and most importantly, he is not calling on any other name. No higher authority, no higher power. He's simply speaking out of his own power and authority. 
So we can allow this category of demonic evil into our understanding of reality because Jesus is king over it. We can do it without fear. We can consider how our pain, our sin struggles in life might be influenced by demonic evil, and we can bring it before King Jesus and allow him to heal us and deliver us. Okay, now we got to talk about pigs for a minute. What is going on with the pigs? As, as far as I can tell, there's just not a crystal clear consensus in the, in the literature about this, but uh, consider a couple things that the, the commentators point out. First, Generally, demons are chaos, destructive, overwhelming. That's, that's what they do, that's who they are. And so the pigs, while wonderful creatures that can take an apple core and turn it into bacon, they're, they're limited relative to, to humans. Like they're, they're limited capacity to experience things. And so one theory is that, uh, that seemed to make a lot of sense, is that the demons, they're trying to avoid being homeless uh, and appeal to Jesus for permission to downgrade from a man to pigs. But then, in the weird mystery of how demons interact with physical bodies, the pigs just freak out. They just get overwhelmed and crazed and just plunge off a cliff. And so the point would be, Jesus allowing permission for them, uh, the demons end up in the thing they were trying to avoid. Despite their strategy for self-preservation, they're stuck in the very situation of being homeless that they were trying to avoid. And this is such a beautiful contrast to the two, two ways of being, two ways of, of fighting or surviving. You have the, the demons that are like hands-on and grab and control and strangle. And Jesus is a judo. judo. He just lets them, gives them over to their plans and desires and let their own movement ruin them. Now we get into the response to King Jesus being over evil in verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the, the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. So the two responses we see here explicitly are the crowds and this formerly demonized person. What is the response of the man to the lordship of Jesus over demonic evil? He's sitting there with Jesus, fully clothed in his right mind. This is one of the most beautiful phrases in scripture. Can we let our hearts be melted by this transformation? The before and after in this passage is so beautiful. This man alone, staggering naked and bleeding in the place of the dead, is now seated, fully clothed at the feet of the Lord of life, comfortable in his own skin, eyes clear, and amongst friends for the first time in years. What is the response of the crowds? They were afraid, and they begged Jesus to depart from the region. Their hearts were not melted by this beautiful transformation. A man they had previously known as this tormented, miserable person, they were scared about change, probably freaking out about money. 2,000 pigs would have been a staggering amount of resources. It probably would have been the entire economy of the region. Some commentators even suggest that they were the Romans' army's pigs. Like they had hired these these people, this region, to take care of their pigs for their army. So they're, they're freaking out. And here's what I think we can see in the response. King Jesus... 
with his power over evil, is going to mess up your life as you've constructed it. There's some weird, we don't have time to dive deep into it, there's some weird like subject action going on with the demonized man talking. Like he begged Jesus to not send them out of the region. And then, you know, it's just who's talking, where in, in this demonized man. But clearly there's some sense that the, there's a power given to this man. There's his way of life that he's, he's kind of established. And when we, when we let King Jesus into our life, he's going to mess it up. Presumably this man can no longer break chains. He's lost this particular power. Or he might call, call you or cause you to give up some resources that might have been available, which you might have found a lot of security and stability in, in order to let Jesus be king. But in order to be seated with Jesus, seating with Jesus in your right mind, you must let him be king. Let him mess up your life and your current plans. I experienced this in a big way uh, back in college, I had an idolatrous desire to be a doctor, and I had some power from that. Like, I was able to work like crazy and sacrifice all kinds of things to pursue it. And when God showed me that I was trying to replace him with this vision of becoming a doctor, I lost that relentless striving that I, that I could get to try to harness good grades. Like, I would, like, bum Adderall off people to study all night. I mean, I shouldn't have said that. I might get fired. But uh, the... <laughs> That, you know, it's an unhealthy relationship to work and improvement. Because why? It was no longer give me A's or else I die. It's give me Christ or else I die. In order to experience the freedom from evil under Jesus, who is king over evil, we must follow him as king, as our Lord. Not just mentally or theologically, but in the nitty-gritty of our lives, which, friends, is just discipleship. Sticking with him. We don't, they, they don't get mentioned at all, but the disciples are there just watching. They're just with him. they just probably still traumatized from surviving the storm, and now there's a demon, and they're like, we don't even know. We're just here. Like, we're, we're just here watching Jesus do stuff. But I hope we see that access to the freeing power of Jesus over evil is trusting and obeying. Trust and obey. There's no other way. Let me bring up our grid of evil again from early on. Because I, I added a column. If evil operates through lies that play to our disordered desires in our flesh, which are then affirmed and normalized in a fallen world, fallen society, then our, our response must be to allow Jesus to be king in each of those areas. How do we fight evil under King Jesus? How do we submit to the power of King Jesus and let him reign? Well, we, we allow Jesus to be king over the lies of the devil through truth, through scripture, teaching of our king, i.e. the Bible and teachings like what you're doing right here, teaching of the Bible. We allow God's truth, God's reality to be more real than that terrible lie that maybe God doesn't love you and doesn't want your good. We and that looks practically like we start our days with scripture instead of our phones. We, we dial in our news to scripture ratio. Like to what degree is the, the, the powers and principalities of the 24-hour news cycle informing our worldview over scripture? We allow Jesus to be king over the flesh through our disordered our disorder desires through bodily practices that can reorder our desires. We allow Jesus to be king over greed by practices of simplicity and generosity and 
be king over lust through fasting and other practices. We allow Jesus to be king over the temptation to work for our significance by, by bodily practices of rest, like Sabbath. And we resist the fallen world, a society that normalizes destructive lies by joining the people of God in a place and time called a church. We join a society of people who are together following Jesus, living under the same truth, the same narrative, working together to encourage each other to rightly order their desires. Do you feel defeated by evil in your life? Depression, broken relationships, besetting sins that just feel you feel bound and stuck by. Consider how you can allow Jesus to be king more holistically so that Jesus the king can heal parts of you. Most of us are wired to just focus on one or two of the categories uh, of the grid there. Maybe we, we love truth and teaching, but our bodily habits don't help us live out the truth that we believe in our heads. Maybe we love relationships and community, but if that isn't based on truth, it's just a social club. What I'm saying is we can leave entire parts of our being, entire parts of our humanity vulnerable to evil if we don't bring our whole selves under the reign of King Jesus. We can leave entire parts of our humanity vulnerable to evil if we don't bring our whole selves under the reign of King Jesus. To close, look how the story ends in verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. I love that Jesus just leads, leaves, no words spoken. He doesn't fight. This is the invitational heart of Jesus. You know, so often, if people don't want him there, he just leaves. He's asking questions. Do you want to be well? Come follow me. What do you want me to do for you? But the demonized man wants to follow Jesus. The phrase used here that he might be with him is the exact same phrase used in chapter 3 to, call Jesus calling disciples, to refer to Jesus calling disciples. But Jesus says no. Why is that? Well, again, not super clear uh, conclusions, but the, most commentators say that on a logistical level, having a Gentile in your inner crew at this day and age with the whole Jew-Gentile deal would have been a nightmare. It would just like staying in different places and all the societal rules. And Jesus is pretty clear that his primary mission was to Israel. He did some teaching and miracles uh, to Gentiles, but God's plan from the beginning was to pick Israel and bless them so they'd become a blessing. He's going to raise up apostles from the Jews, uh, and, and then from Jerusalem, the gospel would go out to the ends of the earth. But what does he do to the man? He gives the man some work to do. Go and tell your friends how much the Lord has done. And the man went and proclaimed what Jesus had done, what Jesus the Lord had done for him. The king of, over demonic evil had done for him. And that brings us to communion. We're trying something new this morning and landing the plane of the sermon with communion. When we come forward to partake of communion, we're proclaiming what Jesus, the king over evil, has done for us. The exaltation and coronation of the king over evil didn't happen in a fancy palace with a crown of gold. It happened outside the city amongst the tombs. And like the demonized man in the story, Jesus was naked, covered in wounds, bound to a cross, that he could have come down 
down from, but he didn't. He stayed. And Jesus' power as king over demonic evil is based on the fact of the cross and the resurrection where he defeated evil. We read it in Genesis 3. God says to the devil at the very beginning of the story, of the, of the evil origin story, that this, you will bruise the son of man's heel, but he will crush your head. The cross was the devil's attempt to defeat Jesus. And for three days, it looked like evil had won. But the cross was really the devil putting his head right by Jesus' foot. Because through the cross, Paul says in Romans 16, Jesus crushed Satan's head. He defeated evil and became king over it by absorbing it into his person and dying and conquering it through his resurrection. He absorbed the evil done against you, the evil that you have done, the bitterness, the anger, the, the pride that we open ourselves up to. And Jesus is king over all of it. He's over all of our pain because in his wounds, in his wounded body on the cross, we are healed. So as we come forward to partake of the Lord's Supper, uh, come proclaiming what the Lord has done for you. Bring all the evil you struggle with, all the complexity of evil that has been done to you, that you've done, and hold it before King Jesus. And then taste, partake of the cracker and the wine and acknowledge that Jesus is king and see that he is good. Our tradition here